Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, you can open it to the Gospel of John chapter 4 and kind of keep your finger there. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures before we get to there. It's going to take us a minute to get there this morning, but that's going to be our main text, Gospel of John chapter 4. Over the last several weeks, we're talking about uh, mission and vision of our church. We started this last week, and uh, we're focusing primarily on our mission because, as I said last week, even though we've titled the series Own the Vision, the way we own the vision, personalize the vision that the Lord has for our church is by embracing the mission he's given us and every local church. If we're going to see what we hope to see in and through North Park here in Baldwin Park, we have to be willing to do what God has called us to do. And that's what our mission is, is what he's called us to do. I want you to imagine this morning, um, if you woke up and all of a sudden you were seated, seated in this room, but you had amnesia, okay? Just like in the movies. And you didn't know who you were. You didn't know where you were. You're just seated in this room full of people. The songs are being sung. A guy gets up, opens a book, and begins to read it, but you have no idea. You have a lot of questions, right? Your first questions would be, who am I? <laughs> where am I? Why am I here? And if we were in that situation, many of us would nervously try to fit in maybe until the service was over, try not to cause too much of a scene so no one would know that we don't really realize if we belong or not or where we're at, or maybe you'd just freak out. I don't know. Um, but you'd be frustrated. You'd be confused. Your sense of identity and purpose has been taken from you, right? You'd, you'd, you'd feel utterly lost. You can imagine what that would feel like. And I believe many churches are operating like they have spiritual amnesia. We can feel lost and frustrated and confused, and so can individual believers as well. We can act like we don't know who we are or why we're here. Many in the church begin to fill in the blanks when we go through these situations, and we begin to say, well... I think we're here for this, and I think we should be doing this. And we begin to fill in the blanks with our preferences, and those things begin to populate the list. But the truth is, every local church and every believer has an identity and has a mission. And it's not something we come up with in a, on, a, on, a, on a whiteboard in a room. It's been mandated to us. It's been given to us as a mandate from the Lord Jesus. We are Jesus' church. That's our identity, right? We belong to him, and our mission is the one he has called us to in making disciples. More about that in just a moment, but... If we don't know what we're doing as a church, why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing, all we become is an event, right? And when it comes to doing events, we can't keep up. Disney does better events. <laughs> SeaWorld does better events. We were talking about some of that kind of stuff this morning in, our, in, our, in my small group. Events, we can't keep up with that. We're in a city that does events better than any city maybe in the world. But we're called to be more than an event. We're called to be a, a community of people on mission, right? The church. And in Matthew 28, we read what we're called to do. So I told you we're going to look at another scripture first. So it kind of sets up the next three weeks. Matthew 28, 17 through 20. I'm going to read it to you. The end of Matthew's gospel says, When they saw him, Jesus, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we know our mission, make disciples. And we know what type of people we're supposed to be and what type of person a disciple is. is they, if someone trusts and follows Christ, someone becomes a disciple and God transforms them on the inside, is he supposed to have transformed us on the inside? 
begin to look a little bit different. I think Jesus kind of gives us the description of that in Matthew 22 when he says if you could sum up the law, Matthew 22, verses 37 and 39, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this is what it looks like to walk with God. This is what it looks like to love God. It means to love him. with He's the supreme love of your life, and you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The way we summarize our mission here at North Park, the way I have been summarizing it for the last few years is this. We exist to glorify God by helping people trust and follow Christ through worship, community, and mission. See, to be a disciple means you begin to trust and follow Jesus with your life. By faith, you put your faith in him to save you from your sins, and you begin to follow him, right? That's Jesus' invitation to people all through the Gospels. Follow me. Pattern your life after me. Walk with me. Obey me. And when you become a believer, the Gospel of Jesus reorients your life towards God and towards others so that you love God and you love others. And so that's where we get worship from. That's reorienting your life towards God. Jesus says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But you're also reoriented towards others, and particularly other believers, right? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus goes a step further in John's gospel and says it is by our love for one another. How the church, how the community of faith loves one another is how the rest of the world on the outside recognizes we belong to Jesus. So that's community, loving one another. That's what we're called to do. And then it reorients us towards the world. God, God gives us a mission. He says love your neighbor as yourself. As we do that, we go and we make disciples. Now, notice the Great Commission actually contains all these themes of worship and community and mission. First of all, we see them worshiping Jesus when they showed up there in verse 17. And, and Jesus, the first thing he tells them before he gives them the command, he says, all authority in heaven and earth is, is mine. It's been given to me. Right? We have, to recognize, we have to recognize him. It starts there recognizing his supremacy, his lordship, his authority. And then who do we baptize them in the name of? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey who? To obey Jesus' word. See, it, we're, we're worshipers. All of this is, is implicit in that. It's, it's identifying people with God and it's giving glory to God and recognizing the authority of Jesus and teaching people to obey Jesus' word. All those are elements of worship because we are worshipers pointing people upward to the Lord. And then he says, when he says baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, what's happening there is a new community is being created. God is stamping his name over a people. The church, marked by his name, under his authority. And then we're inviting people on the outside to come in because he tells us to what? To go, to make, to teach, sending us out. Worship, community, and mission all throughout that command, that mission that God's given us. Now, today we're going to focus on the first element of worship. So that's why we're in John chapter 4 this morning. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament. John, in, G, in John 4, Jesus has left... Judea and is headed to Galilee and in route there he had to go through Samaria and it says he had to go through Samaria and people debate does that just mean he had to because the spirit was compelling him to because many times Jews would avoid going that route then others say well even though they didn't like going through it they would go there we don't really know but obviously there's a divine appointment waiting for Jesus we're going to see when he gets to Samaria so what is Jesus doing here well he's doing in this passage that we're about to read what he is doing throughout the gospels he tells us in this passage that we're going to read that the Father is seeking true worshipers. See, Jesus is always about the Father's business. And so throughout the Gospels, Jesus is taking people who are far from God and turning them into true worshipers of God. 
In John 3, the chapter before this one, it's a religious man who's pretty well-to-do, most likely, named Nicodemus. And in John 4, it's likely a poor woman with a life riddled with guilt and shame. Same goal with both this man and this woman, and that is to turn them into true worshipers. So look at John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 5. Verse 5. I'm going to kind of read and stop, read and stop, and then we'll get into the meat of what we're going to talk about. Starting in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, let's pause there. Here's what you need to know about the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jews could not stand each other. The Samaritans came about when a group of Jews had intermarried with pagan Gentiles in the, during the Old Testament times and mixed worship of God with worship of idols. Kind of created their own worship, their own thing going. They created their own religion to the point that they, they, they kind of took apart part of the Old Testament. They took the prophets, things like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and they just kind of ripped that out. They did not observe, they didn't accept the prophets. And the Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean because, well, they had, for, they had did what the Old Testament law said not do. They had, they had intermarried with Gentiles, with unbelievers. And they had comp- they had, so their compromise led them to believe that they were unclean. And the Samaritans had their own place of worship. So they didn't even, even though they had the same Old Testament, because they didn't have the prophets, they understood about even like the place of worship differently. So they worshipped on one mountain, while the Jews believed, because of what was said in the prophets, that they should worship on another mountain. This was so bad, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, that Jews did not speak to or interact with Samaritans. It's been said that it was, it was uncommon for, for Jewish men to even, to, to, even, um, to, to even speak to their own wives in public. So imagine here Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman right, at a public place. Jews did not speak to or interact with Samaritans anyway. This was a deeply religious, cultural, ethnic, and racial conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And as one commentator noted, this lady had three strikes against her. Samaritan, a woman, and as we're going to see, she does not have a good reputation. So look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of the God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So, pause there for a second. You see here, they're running, they're, their minds are running on two different tracks. She's, Jesus offers her living water. She's thinking about very natural things, right? Making her life a little easier but not having to go to this well. Jesus is thinking of supernatural things. The best thing she can imagine is not having to come back to that well and draw water anymore. 
that would meet a need for her. However, Jesus is offering her spiritual life. He's offering her inner transformation and ultimate satisfaction of her soul. But she's just thinking, I don't want to have to come back to this well. And, you know, a lot of different reasons for that for her. It's hard work, but also she's, she's there at noon, at noon, like in the heat of the day. Typically, they would come early, the ladies would come early in the morning or late in the afternoon as the sun was setting to get the water. They didn't come in the heat of the day. She's coming there because, well, we're about to find out why she comes. When she comes, she doesn't want anybody else to be there. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's happening here? Well, Jesus offers her living water. She says, give me the living water, even though she doesn't really understand what's going on here. And Jesus says, well, go get your husband. What's he doing? He's, he's dealing directly with her sin. This particular lady had either been divorced and remarried five times or had five husbands who had passed away. Statistically speaking, we would probably guess it probably wasn't five husbands who had passed away. Either way, she was in an immoral relationship at the moment with a man that was not her husband. She was playing house with someone she wasn't married to. And the lady tries changing the subject, right, it seems. Or it's possible also that she's so impressed with Jesus' knowledge of her life as, as someone who was curious about spiritual things, maybe she's wanting to see what he thinks about this whole worship debate. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, Jesus turns the subject back. She brings up, she throws him the worship curveball, and he says, you know what, you want to debate where you worship, but it's not about where, it's about who and how you worship. There's much more at stake in your worship than location. Let's talk about the very nature of worship. And then he describes an hour that is coming that is going to completely redefine worship and blow their minds in terms of how worship even works. And that hour that is coming is his death and his resurrection and his, his, his exaltation. It's, it's the work that he's about to do on the cross. Now notice she says she knows that the Messiah is coming. Now the Samaritans didn't actually usually use the terms Messiah. She's probably using it to be polite because she's speaking to a Jew. The, they used the term Tahi. And they thought of the Messianic figure different than the Jews did. They didn't really think of him in, in civific terms, in salvation terms. Because remember, they don't have the prophets. And they don't have Isaiah 53. And they don't have a lot, even some of the political aspirations that the Jews had in that day from those things. So they think of the Messianic figure more as a revealer of truth than a savior. A prophet who would show the way and reveal the truth of God. Now, we happen to know that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate revealer of truth. He is the truth. And he's the <coughs> ultimate priest, and he's the ultimate king. In verse 27, it says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
they went out of the town and were coming in. Now, we think about all this text, this great passage, three truths I want us to wrap our mind around this morning that will help, help us better as worshipers and to understand some of the nature of what New Testament worship is all about and also help us better make and equip worshipers, okay? Three truths. Number one, God is seeking worshipers, okay? That's one of the main things I believe we need to take away from this text that is illustrated in this text is that God is in the business of actively seeking out people to worship himself. In verse 23, Jesus makes that clear, right? God is seeking not just worshipers, but true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. He's seeking them. Even in using that phrase, he's saying something uncommon in that day. He says, the Father is seeking worshipers. He tells us something about the, the identity of God and the identity of Jesus because as the Messiah, he is the, he's the Son. And so... He's sowing things into the conversation about the very nature and fatherhood of God. He's, he's pointing to those things. And remember, Jesus was always about the Father's business. He's, he's sent on mission by the Father. And if God is seeking worshipers, true worshipers, that means Jesus is seeking worshipers. Jesus, is, in his ministry, was making people who were far from God the true worshipers of God. Now, God is not seeking worshipers in the sense that he's hoping someone will rise up and worship him. Like God is scouring the earth, hoping he will find someone that will give him some worship. He's just lonely and needy. Somebody sing me a tune, right? Somebody offer me a sacrifice. I'm, I'm looking. Can't find anybody. Well, the Bible tells us no one seeks God, no, not one. He's seeking worshipers in the sense of there's a certain type of worship he demands. And he seeks it in the sense of he knows no one's offering it. So he goes out and he turns people into worshipers so that they will offer the type of worship that he demands. See, we are naturally worshipers. Everyone worships something or someone or somehow. The only question is, what are we worshiping? Are we worshiping the true God and are we worshiping him correctly? Because God wants, God demands that we worship him. In Isaiah 43, 7, it says everyone... God is talking here and he says, he's talking about who he's calling and he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory. He made us for himself. He made us to make a big deal of him, to make much of him, created to live for him. Life's not about us. We're made for God. And in the act of making disciples, we are joining Jesus in this work of seeing people reconciled to what they were created for. For God. We're pointing people to Jesus so they become true worshipers. And this is what God is seeking and what. And ultimately, it's what humanity needs. What we need most in life is God. More than anything else. More than our financial woes cured. More than our, our health cured. More, more than our anything else. We need God. Even if we don't fully realize that. We're made for Him. He's, he's the purpose for which we're made. We're made to give glory to God. So no matter if everything else lines up, right? So we're out of debt. The bank account's full and everybody loves us and we love our job and everything's great. If we're not reconciled to God, then ultimately we've missed the whole point of life and we're disconnected from our very purpose. And those other things can't hold the weight of eternity. You know, most every week, um, since Cannon started kindergarten, at some point during the week, usually towards the end of the week, I take him and we go somewhere and we get breakfast together. It's usually donuts because that's like his favorite thing. And it's usually Dunkin' Donuts because that's the closest place for us. And so we go we on a Thursday or Friday morning or something like that. And I get him a donut and something else to just get him all jazzed up for his teacher because I love teachers. And I'm just kidding. But it gets him all, he's ready, he's awake, right? And we send him off. Now, I am a Krispy Kreme donut guy. 
First name being Coach Krispy Kreme. Um, I'm a Krispy Kreme guy, right? But Dunkin' Donuts, I like Dunkin', I like donuts, period, right? And so any donut that's not stale is usually a good donut. And so now if I go to Krispy Kreme, which is my favorite place to go, and the only we only got one near us here, over in Winter Park. If if I go there and I get one, you know, the, the, you know, see the hot now sign, right? It's my love language, hot now, right? <laughs> I go in there and I get one of those hot off the presses, so to speak, and I and I take a big bite of that donut and I eat that donut. All the little flavor sensors go off, you know, I, you know with a big thing of whole milk. You know what I don't do? I don't say wow. Dunkin' Dunkin' Donuts makes great donuts. I don't say. Where can I get more of these? Target? Um, Walmart? Um, I, don't, I don't get confused about what I'm eating. I don't get confused about who made it. If I've got questions about what's in it, I don't go to somebody. I, I can ask them right there behind the counter. I'm very well aware. What goes through my mind is, man, Krispy Kreme makes fantastic donuts. Right? Fantastic donuts. But when it comes to God and experiencing life that he has gifted us with, He's made us for himself and he's created us and he's put us here on this earth. And we're made to experience life. We're made to taste life and go, wow, God is amazing. But we don't do that naturally. We go about our living and we look everywhere but God to God for answers. We get proud when something good comes into our life and think about how much we earned it and how good we did. We're better naturally at giving donut places their proper due than we are God. You say, really? I'm really. So why is that? Sin. That's what it does. Now, I know that sounds like a silly illustration, but that's how broken humanity is. We find it easy to give things their proper praise. We find it hard, though, to give God his proper praise. <clears throat> because he demands the ultimate. He demands everything. It's the only way. But sin has distorted our worship so that it's all messed up. And that brings us to number two. Number one is God is seeking worshipers. Number two is sin distorts our worship. Ever since the fall, our worship's been messed up and warped and wrong and misaimed. Instead of being aimed at God, it's aimed at other things. And when it's aimed at God, it's aimed wrongly and then many times with the wrong intentions. Jesus, Jesus points this out to her in verse 22 when he tells her about her and the Samaritans. He says, you worship what you do not know. There's something wrong with your worship. The problem's not that you don't worship. Because we all worship. The problem's that you're worshiping wrongly. There's something wrong with it. You worship what you don't know. There was a flaw in her and her people's worship. They had rejected, first of all, a major portion of the Old Testament Scriptures. The prophets. And in doing so, they were missing many of the Messianic prophecies. And listen, you can't reject God's Word and take out part of God's Word and ignore God, part of God's Word and get an accurate picture of God or worship correctly. Something's missing when we do that. The very idea that the Father is seeking true worshipers tells us there is a problem with humanity. If we had no problem, if the world was filled with true worshipers, the Father wouldn't be seeking them. His seeking worshipers tells us the world is broken, the people are broken. See, the Samaritan woman herself had, lots of, had her own issues. Remember the conversation started around water. And Jesus was offering her living water. And Jesus was speaking of spiritual life, eternal life, and the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, she has her mind on earthly things. If she, if she was already a true worshiper of God, then she wouldn't be in, in need of eternal life that Jesus is offering her. He says, if you drink the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. See, there's a thirst 
that every soul has that can only be quenched by God because we're made for Him, for His glory. So there's a thirst that every human soul has that can only be quenched by God. She didn't have living water. She didn't have that thirst quenched because her soul was drinking from the wrong well. And Jesus pointed this out. He told her, go get your husband. And in doing so, he exposed her life. Asking her to call her husband, he was forcing her to confront her issues. For this woman, you might say she was drinking from the well of romance and relationships. But that is a well, if you look for it, to quench your spiritual thirst, you'll always have to go back and return for another drink. Everyone fights the battle of rebelling against or replacing God in our lives. Romans 1 tells us that, and that's what this woman had done. Listen, Romans 1, verses 21 through 25, let me read some portions of that. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Right? He says, goes on to say, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He goes on to say, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, create, the, cre the creature rather than the Creator. That's humanity. That's, that's our problem. Our problem is fundamentally a worship problem. Humanity's greatest issue is worship. We've worshiped creation instead of creator. Self instead of God. Lesser things instead of the glorious one. Whatever you look to for meaning, wherever you're looking for purpose, for fulfillment, for ultimate security, and for peace, that's what you're worshiping. I believe for her it was relationships. For you it might be money or family or success or security or a host of other things. The question is, if you encountered Jesus at a well this morning or you bumped into him, had a conversation with him down here in Baldwin Park around the fountain and you got into a spiritual conversation with him and he offered you living water, what would you have to go back to the house to get? For her, it was go get your husband. For you, he might say, go bring me your wallet. Bring me a bank statement. Bring your family here. Bring the last review you got at work. Bring the evidence of your promotion. But Jesus is going to force us to deal with our stuff. And the stuff that we have in way of ultimate relationship with Him. The stuff that we look to to validate ourselves and to fill us up instead of Him. I've used this Tim Keller quote before. It's worth repeating Pastor Tim Keller says, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So the question for us this morning is first, what, what, is, what is your life? What is my life? What is it built on? Because we're created to, to worship God and build our lives on, on Him. And the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to be the way that it is. Our neighbors and ourselves, apart from Christ, we, we worship wrongly. Our worship's distorted. We worship the wrong things. We put our hope in the wrong things. And many times we worship God with wrong motives. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus came to offer hope and offer our neighbors hope. And that brings the third point this morning. The gospel transforms our worship. God is seeking worshipers. Sin has distorted our worship so that we don't worship God as we should. But the good news of the Bible is the gospel transformed our worship. Did you notice what she said when Jesus offered living water in verse 15? 
She said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She was going to be way too easily satisfied. Right? Jesus is offering her new life, spiritual life, eternal life, life with God forever. He's offering her a relationship with God. But she's so earthly minded, so carnal minded, so, her, I, so much on the here and now. She's just saying, if I could just, just not have to come back here. That sounds like living water to me. There's some confusion here because in their, in their vernacular, it was a synonym for like running fresh water and living water. But she's just, she's not even, she's just not picking up on what Jesus is talking about. It's like if you went to your spouse today and you said, hey, honey, the husband went to a wife and said, hey, I've got a huge surprise for you. And she said, you loaded the dishwasher. <laughs> and you're thinking, we're going on a cruise. I'm surprising you with like something like, first of all, right, there's a disconnect. Kind of like Jesus with this woman that you're thinking on two different levels. Secondly, you probably need to do more fun things with your wife. <laughs> but that's what's happening here. They're not, they're just completely in different worlds here in terms of how they're thinking. People's thinking towards God is too low. We are, as C.S. Lewis said, far too easily pleased. Listen, you can have a better life. You can have your local church as your local life coach for you. You can have success, a happy family. And only have well water, not living water. Do not settle for a better life. Jesus came to give a whole lot more than a better life. Jesus doesn't let her settle because that's not what he's offering in the first place. We shouldn't let people settle either. But if we don't confront sin, if we don't confront idols, if, if we don't risk offending people for the sake of helping people, we can't have or offer what Jesus offers. Jesus transforms us into people who know and worship God. He makes us true worshipers. In verse 14, he says, he gives a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's given, it's not earned. He gives a spring of water welling up to eternal life. At other times in John, when Jesus speaks like this, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you from John 7. A few chapters after this, in John 7, verses 38 and 39, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, now this he said about the Spirit who had not yet come. Jesus is promising her a deeper need being met than the one she's just trying to have met, the need for God. Eternal life, Jesus says in John, is to know the Father and to know the Son whom he sent. It's, it's to be in relate, right relationship with God for all of eternity in his presence. And when you come to Jesus, you begin to drink from a new well, a new spring, living water, but you also get a well in you, right? The Holy Spirit who takes up residence in your life. He's rivers of living water, he promised, that would flow from us. Remember, the conversation had turned to worship, though. She wanted to talk about the Jewish-Samaritan debate about which mountain to worship on. Jesus turned it back to the very nature of worship itself, who and how you worship, worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. Look at that down in verses 22 to 24. It's on the screen for you. Notice what Jesus says. He says, first of all, he says, salvation is of the Jews. The Messiah would come through the Jews. The promises of God were given to the Jews. The Samaritans were lacking in knowledge about God. They had disregarded much of the portion of the scriptures. He says, you worship what you don't know. 
We worship what we know because salvation is coming from the Jews. The Messiah is coming from the Jews. The promises of God were given to the Jews. And then he says, the hour is coming. And I told you at the beginning, that speaks to Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. The gospel of Jesus is going to make it possible for them, for all of us, to be true worshipers of God. The hour is coming where this can happen, where people can be turned into true worshipers. In his death on the cross, in Jesus pays our sin debt, right? So when Jesus goes to the cross, he pays our sin debt. He, he bears the penalty we deserve. Taking our sin upon himself and bearing the wrath of God for us and so that sinners can be forgiven of our idolatry. And when we believe on Jesus, we share in his resurrection. He's raised from the dead. Come, And when we, when we put our faith in him, when he died, we died. When, when, we, when he rose, we rose. We, we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. And just as surely as he is risen from the dead, we are given new spiritual life. And the gospel, see, has changed everything. It's transformed us from the inside out as we're spiritually alive people through faith in Christ. See, Jesus points out this idea of the hour that is coming twice to her. The first time, he's speaking, showing that, it, that the gospel is going to do away with the importance of place when it comes to worship. It doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter what the building looks like. It doesn't matter that it's nine-foot ceilings with fluorescent lights and an upstairs room and a, you know, 2047 Prospect Avenue in Ballon Park. Or if it's on a large interstate with a 5,000-seat room and a steeple the size of the Empire State Building. It doesn't matter because the place, Jesus says, that whole method of worship is dying. I'm killing it. Because I'm going to the cross and a new temple's here. A new temple's here. And he says, the new temple, the truer and better temple Jesus is pointing to is himself who's going to lay down his life for us and be raised from the dead so that little temples spring up all over the place. One glorious new temple, which is the church, which is a, a movement of people connected to God. And you can worship here, and you can worship there, and you can worship outside and inside. You can worship at 5 a.m. and 12 p.m. And you can worship in, in Nigeria, and you can worship in Alabama, and you can worship in Orlando, right here, right where you sit. And you can worship all the time because... Place is not what's going to matter. It's about who and how you worship. But that's the second time when he speaks of the gospel transforming, the time that it's coming. He's talking about the very nature of how we worship being transformed. It's a lot more about, than about doing away with the importance of place. He says you're going to have to worship in spirit and in truth. Let me explain what that means. The worship in spirit speaks to the inner quality of worship, right? It's spirit with a little s, not capital S. It's our spirit. And Jesus says, goes on to say, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When he says God is spirit, he's speaking to God's invisible. And as D.A. Carson notes, unknowable to humans unless he reveals himself to us. And commentators point out what Jesus said in John 3, right? That John records to us just a chapter before when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, capital S, is spirit, little s. See, to worship in spirit means to first be made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit through the new birth. Only that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is spirit, lowercase s. The Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside and makes us alive spiritually. Our spirit becomes alive, and now we can worship. And it speaks to the, that inner quality of worship that it comes from within, from inner transformation. It's a matter of the heart. 
See, we need the Spirit to give us life and to enable us to worship in the heart. It's not about place, but about heart. And then he says you have to worship in truth. Now, here's what D.A. Carson says about that. He says, quote, Essentially, what Jesus is describing is God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in personal knowledge of and in conformity to God's Word made flesh, the one who is God's truth, the faithful exposition and fulfillment of God and His saving purpose. What are you talking about? When John tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh. So when Jesus says you've got to worship in spirit and truth, he says worship's about inner transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's also about me. It's about me. Truth first and foremost refers to Jesus, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. For worship to be true, it must have right knowledge of God and who he is. That's revealed in Jesus. You can't know God and worship God apart from Jesus. You can't worship God without Jesus. It can also carry the idea of authenticity. Right? And it's authentic. It comes from within. It's not the hypocritical worship of many of the Pharisees of that day. It's authentic and it's connected to Christ. And it's Christ is the mediator between us and God. And it's, it's gospel-fueled worship. We have been transformed from the inside. And now the gospel stokes our worship of God. And that we worship from the heart with true knowledge of God. And authenticity that comes from knowing God. Jesus. So the gospel changes everything. We go from being content to drink what ultimately can't satisfy to having eternal life. Being spiritually alive. Being indwelled by the Spirit of God so that we can now be a true worshiper. The gospel transforms our worship and it makes it knowledgeable and real. It changes our worship because it changes us when we put our faith in Christ. We're new people with new hearts set aflame by the Holy Spirit. And we love Jesus from the heart and we desire to make him known and we seek to authentically glorify him with our lives and that's what it means to be someone who worships in spirit and truth. Nothing but spirit and truth type worship is acceptable to God. Everything else is hollow. It's a clanging bell. Jesus says true worshipers must worship this way. We have to get our minds around this. We do not get to define what acceptable worship is. Just because we come in here or we go through our lives thinking we worship God doesn't mean we have. Jesus gets to define worship. And he says you must worship in spirit and truth. And worship isn't an hour of the week. It's about a transformed life. Romans 12.1 tells us our spiritual worship is to present our bodies and our lives virtually to the Lord as holy and acceptable. It's, it's not 1045 at 2047 prospect. It means I long to make much of Jesus in my family and in my workplace and in my neighborhood and in everywhere and sphere my life touches, that I have found living water and I have no need for the dirty wells of the world any longer. And in, and in helping people trust and follow Christ, we are making disciples worshipers, pointing people to Jesus so their life can be reoriented by God's spirit, spirit toward God. So what does that mean for corporate worship? What does that mean for this hour? If you read the New Testament, you won't see a lot in there about this hour. Not because it's not we're supposed to do it. We are supposed to do it. It's been unheard of in New Testament times for, for Christians to not meet and worship. The church has been gathering for worship since its founding, since its existence. But this hour is supposed to be overflow. We come in here to worship out of the overflow of a life that's been worshiping 24-7 all week. But to do it with other people. The way we equip people for lives of gospel-fueled worship and foster an environment for lives of worship is through corporate worship. 
Corporate worship is where we nurture and we encourage the lifestyle of worship we're called to live. We're to be more concerned with spirit and truth when we come in here than we are style because that's what we're supposed to live when we go out of here. We're supposed to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, right? When we leave here, it's not about your style. Hey, make sure you live for the Lord with this style this week, right? If you hum, it better be this, right? This tune. Dress this way all week. As you, We don't do that, right? This is an overflow of what during the week, and it's supposed to be about spirit and truth. And so whatever we do when we come together, we have to worship in spirit and truth. It's not about style. It doesn't matter if it's Hillsong's Best or Bill Gaither's Finest. If our heart isn't right, and if it isn't glorifying to Jesus, it's not, we're not worshiping. So when we gather together and we hear songs and we hear a sermon, we should mostly be concerned with, is this true? And does it glorify Jesus? Not, do I like the style? Does it fit my personal taste? If corporate worship is mostly about me and my preferences and me being satisfied with what happens when we gather, then I've made myself the object of my worship during that hour. It does us no good to come in here and try to fill up if we're not willing to empty ourselves out when we come to the doors. We come together to worship God to be challenged by His Word that we might live worshipful lives all week. We pray, we sing, we preach, we listen, we respond, we give, we observe the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. We pray to God, we sing to God, we preach His Word, we listen to hear and obey God, respond to God. We give thanks to the Lord for His Word. We exhort the ordinances that He gave us. It's all about Him. And as we do this, we're encouraged, we're edified, and we leave and we worship throughout the week. But if you only worship here, you don't really worship. If it's not 24-7, it's not really worship. We help people trust and follow Christ through worship. When we live lives of worship that point people to Jesus, and when we gather for worship, we encourage 24-7 heart worship through our service, and we sing to God and hear from His Word as we gather together. When we're doing that, we're, we're encouraging that as we sing things from the heart, and as we open God's word together and we hear things and we respond with our heart in our spirit and it's connected to the truth of God's word as revealed specifically that points to Jesus Christ. I love Pastor John Popper's illustration for worship from this text. He uses the image of a furnace, a fire. He says, imagine the furnace is your spirit, your heart, your spirit, your inner man. The fuel is God's truth. That's the wood. That's the gasoline. That's whatever you're using for fuel. The fire is God's spirit. And the heat that comes off from all that is the affections of joy and trust and reverence and thankfulness under the Lord. So when we gather, we're stoking the furnace of our heart, of our inner man with gospel truth through the teaching of God's word. And God's spirit continues to to use that in our spirit to change us and to mold us so that we glorify Him and we go out of here all week and we give off heat that other people can see and feel. Why are they so thankful? Why is their attitude that way? Why are they so joyful? How can they trust the Lord in all those circumstances? It's because of what's in the furnace. How's your worship this morning? 
Are you set aflame in your heart with the love for Jesus and his truth? Are you drinking from other wells unbeknownst to you, giving glory to something other than God? What makes you most happy? What makes you most sad? That's the indicators. What's the focus of our lives? And if you don't know Christ today, if, you, if you've never been given living water, if you've never had your sins forgiven, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I implore you today, I encourage you today to come to Christ. He invites you to come and become a true worshiper and to drink from a well, from living water that will make you never thirst again. And as a church family, let's commit to being a people that point people to Jesus with our personal lives of worship and our corporate worship together. Let's help people trust and follow Christ. Let's pray.